Well, we're halfway through the narrative of Noah's Ark today. We're halfway through. Noah had been instructed by God to build an ark, a large boat, and Noah had been appointed as a herald, a preacher of the message that God was going to judge the world and that the only way of salvation, of deliverance from this judgment was to make use of the provision that God had made and to get in the ark. Noah had preached that message faithfully, as we know from New Testament passages that speak about Noah. And then the day came when Noah and his wife and his sons and his sons' wives and every kind of animal, every kind of bird came into the ark with him and the waters came upon the earth. The whole earth was flooded. Now imagine what it might have been like to be inside that boat as the waters began to rise and you began to feel the boat lift. As of course the first inch or two of water covering the earth wouldn't have lifted such a huge boat. Even the first several feet likely wouldn't have lifted such a huge boat. But eventually they would have felt that boat lift. And it seems from the language of chapter 7 that the water was quite powerful. It says, for example, in verse 18 in our ESV, it says, The waters prevailed. Uh, The Hebrew says something like the waters went forth really strongly or something like that. Uh, When we read about the fountains of the great deep bursting forth in chapter 7 and verse 11, some, some people think that that refers to water coming out of the ground. And so there may have even been uh, fissures in the ground through which water came and somehow it exploded up out of the ground. It might have been actually quite a bit different than sort of just rain, a lot of rain falling and falling and falling. We might have had earthquakes and the ground splitting and water coming up from the ground. We don't know exactly how all of this happened, but because the fountains of the great deep bursting forth and the windows of the heavens being opened are both mentioned in chapter 7 and verse 11. There's reason to think that this was more than just a lot, a lot, a lot of rain. And so, if that's the case, as they felt perhaps the ground shaking around them, as they uh, heard, who knows what, rocks splitting and, and, and crashing around them, water spraying up perhaps, water beating down on the roof of the ark, and then eventually feeling that ark lift off from the ground and if these waters were rushing quickly out of the ground, if water was rushing down from the mountaintops, there may have been even strong currents. And so the ark may not have been sort of just taking a course straight up, uh, becoming more and more elevated from the ground, uh, little by little in sort of a directly vertical direction. But it might have been spinning It might have been carried along this way and then carried along this way. Uh, For those who struggle with seasickness, you could imagine how unpleasant it would be to be in a boat with no windows, simply feeling yourself being tossed around to and fro. And this lasted for a long time. The, The rain continued for 40 days, but the 
after, even after the rain stopped, the boat was floating for a long time afterward. This whole, this whole narrative takes a year to unfold from when Noah gets into the ark to when Noah comes out of the ark. It's a year. So imagine a year inside a boat with no windows, feeling things, uh, feeling, feeling it floating and, and rushing back and forth and so on and so forth. And you're in there with a whole bunch of animals. I don't know exactly what that would have been like, but I imagine it was, after a while, fairly unpleasant. Perhaps there would have been some novelty to it. Uh, we don't know what the relationship between man and animals was exactly before the flood uh, either. After the flood, we read it here in this passage, chapter 9, in verse 2, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. Was there kind of an in-between stage from when Adam lived in harmony with the animals on one end of the spectrum to the fear and the dread of man being on the animals? Was there some in-between? where the relationship between man and animals was no doubt distant, distanced by the fall, but perhaps it was something other than it was now. So was it, was it normal to have a closer relationship with the animals before the flood? I don't know exactly, but there was still likely some novelty to living in a boat with lots of animals. But after a while, that would have become really tedious. And then you'd be, you'd have... Concerns about provision. God had instructed Noah to bring food into the ark. You'd have concern about provision. You'd have concern about getting rid of the animal refuse. Uh, There's all kinds of explanations that have been put forth about how it would be feasible for all of this to work. I'm not going to get into those details. But it would work for the length of time that is specified that Noah and his family were actually in the boat. But obviously you couldn't have all of these animals and Noah and his family in that boat indefinitely. Eventually you're going to run out of space to put the refuse. Eventually you're going to run out of food, etc., etc. And so you can imagine this discomfort and the anxiety that Noah and his family likely would have felt inside of the ark. And we know that Noah was a righteous man, that he walked with God, that he trusted God. But what about his family members? At least some of them were unconverted. And so imagine being an unbeliever inside the ark. And you'd have that much more anxiety and that much more stress, that much more wondering then also what life would be like after the flood. Let's think about that for a moment. What would it be like when the water eventually dried up and the ark landed and Noah and his family went back out into that big wide world what would it be like would it be like what we see sometimes in the movies where people come out of perhaps a hole in the ground or a a bomb shelter or something after a cataclysmic nuclear war and they find that the whole place is a wasteland would it be would the ground be basically just a big uh, slew of mud and 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 dirt and dead bodies and rotting carcasses, what would it be like? They would have no categories for thinking about what the world would be like after the flood. And would there be, would God bring a judgment like this again? 
What about, they would perhaps be thinking even in their own lifetimes, would God do this again? Would they have to get back in the ark? After leaving the ark, would they have to get back in it after some months or some years? Would this be a regular occurrence that they'd have to be regularly getting back into the ark as God deals with the sin of mankind? Would God forsake the earth? Would God forsake even to some extent Noah and his family? Had God withdrawn himself? We read in verse in chapter 8 and verse 15 that God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, etc., etc., etc. But that was one year after they entered the ark. And we may deduce, I think, from Noah sending out the raven and the doves, that God wasn't speaking to him and revealing to him how the water was receding. And so they hadn't heard from God in the better part of a year being in this ark. And so had God gotten fed up with the earth and he sent this and he basically gave them this boat and walked away from the earth as it were and figured that Noah and his family were on their own to figure life out after the flood. These would have been the kinds of things that would have been going through their minds. Has God forgotten us? Has God forgotten the earth in general? Not, not only has God forgotten us, but what is the world going to be like from now on? Will, will, will there still be a relationship with Yahweh possible for our children? Our children's children. Our children's children's children. What is the state of the world going to be like for years to come? Has God forgotten us? Will God abandon us? This would have been the kind of thing that people were thinking. But what we read in chapter 8 and verse 1 is that God remembered Noah. God remembers Noah. That doesn't mean that he had forgotten about him and then recalled about Noah. But what it means is that he had him in remembrance all along. That God God had not forgotten about him. The way that you might... If you... Again, we think of movies where somebody perhaps is lost for a long time, a few years or something, and then they come back and they find their spouse and they say, Did you forget about me? You know, they say, no, I never forgot you. I remembered you, or something like this. Or a child, you know, is lost and grows up somewhere else and then is reunited with their birth parents. And they ask, did you forget about me, or something like that. And they say, no, I remembered you every day. I remembered you, something like this. This is what is conveyed when it says, God remembered Noah. The whole time that that ark was floating around, God remembered Noah. The whole time that the water swirled that big boat around, God had Noah and his family and all of the animals in the ark in remembrance. God never forgot. And what we see in this passage is that God had not forgotten Noah and the other ark dwellers, but neither, had, neither will God ever forget the world at large. In other words, in this passage we see not only that God remembered the particular people that he was dealing with inside the ark, 
but that God promises in this passage never to walk away from the world at large. Never to simply disregard and disengage the world at large from Himself. We see in this passage common grace. God is very explicit in this passage that His covenant, chapter 9 and verse 9, is with you, that is Noah, and your offspring after you, and every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. And then in verse 11, uh, pardon me, or verse... um, Verse 12, for you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. What we see in this passage is that God commits that nobody is ever going to have to wonder, has God forgotten about us? Nobody is ever going to have to wonder if Yahweh has just stopped caring about this earth and about the affairs of this earth. No one is ever going to have to wonder if Yahweh has simply stopped caring about the people that populate this planet. That God deal, God commits Himself in this passage to dealing kindly with every person that will ever be born. In fact, even all the animals that will ever be born. That's an amazing thing. So what we see in this passage is God remembering Noah and more than that, God remembering the whole world. God will never forget. And so... We see that God brings the ark to a rest in the mountains of Ararat. And God brings Noah and his family safely out of the ark. In this specific story, we see that God does not forget them. But He not only puts them in the ark, but He brings them out of the ark in due time. We see then in this passage, God speaking explicitly about how the world is going to be from this time forward. We see a restored order. The earth had devolved into some semblance of chaos in the beginning of chapter 6. We read about that, that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. The earth had devolved into some semblance of chaos. And then in the flood, in a sense, the earth devolved further into a state of chaos. That all of the natural order of things was wiped out. All of the plant life, all of the the people, all of the animal life that remained on the earth was wiped out. That the slate was wiped clean as you were. And so the absence of order is chaos. So the earth had really devolved into chaos. But what you see is that coming out of the ark, God is restoring order to the planet. We see that the doves, the dove comes back with an olive branch, freshly plucked olive branch in its mouth, which shows that plant life was now once again growing. It wasn't an old, rotten, soaked olive leaf that had somehow just been waterlogged and laying around on the earth, but it was from new vegetation that was growing. So God is causing vegetation to grow once again on the earth. God reiterates some things 
to Noah that he also said to Adam. He says to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is the same thing that God said to Adam. We also see that God restores the ordinary rituals of worship that Noah gets out of the ark and builds an altar. And so what you see is all of these things that were paused, all of these things that had ceased, are now restored. As Noah and his family comes out of the ark, some normalcy is restored. The vegetation is growing again. The creation mandate is reiterated. Normal worship resumes, etc., etc. What we also see is that there's new order. That it's not exactly the same as it was before the flood. God, for example, says in, in verse 21 of chapter 8, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And the grammar of that sentence had me confused a little bit, and then it finally clicked for me. I kind of thought, well, well why does God promise never again to curse the ground because of man for or because the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Because it would seem that that would actually lead to him cursing the ground again because of man. But what God is, the logic of this is God is saying, if I were to curse the ground again because of man, I would be doing it again next month. Right? In other words, it's gonna, it would happen over and over and over again if I was always to look at man and judge whether or not I should curse the ground because of them. So it's basically like he's saying, if I were to curse the ground because of man, I'd be doing it all the time. So I'm not going to curse the ground again because of man, for, every, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So this is the logic here. So what we see in this passage is that there's something different about the order after the flood than before the flood. Obviously before the flood, it was a possibility that God would curse the ground because of man, because that's exactly what he did in the flood. That God destroyed the earth because of man's sin. After the flood, that is no longer a possibility because God has promised to stay his hand until the last judgment. Incidentally, this doesn't mean that nothing cataclysmic will happen. It doesn't mean that uh, for example, the there's a fault line that runs uh, inland in California that some have been concerned if there is an earthquake involving that fault line, a large part of the state of California would slip into the sea. And obviously if that happened, millions upon millions of people would be killed. Right? Or again, if, if the ocean's water level rose even a meter or two, again, it would be extremely, extremely destructive to uh, human population in, in many coastal regions. Uh, there's, there's a possibility of tornadoes and localized floods, earthquakes that can be cataclysmic and do tons of damage. There's a possibility of nuclear war, which could wipe out possibly even whole nations. These are, these are not things that God has promised never to allow on the earth or never to send upon the earth. But in terms of total and worldwide destruction, 
God has promised to stay His hand until the last judgment. And so, this is a new order that's in place after the flood. There's also new order with respect to the diet of mankind. In, in chapter 9 and verse 3, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So what we see is that in this section, God allows mankind to eat meat. Where back in the beginning of Genesis, it was only vegetables. Now God allows mankind to eat meat. And notice here that he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. So where are the Mosaic dietary laws? Nowhere to be found. These are super added later. And so what we see in this this passage though, is that God uh, is instituting uh, the appropriateness of mankind eating meat. But what we see in this section, right after in verse 4, he says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So God is allowing mankind to eat meat, but He's fencing that by saying you can only eat meat under certain conditions. And as I was trying to understand that this week, a few things came up in my study. One is that blood in Scripture sometimes refers to, or sometimes is part and parcel of pagan Rituals and pagan sacrifices and so on and so forth. Perhaps before the flood, there were those who uh, ate and drank blood as part of pagan worship. And God is saying, you shall not be like that. In true worship, blood is used in atonement, substitutionary sacrifices. The, the ones instituted by Yahweh, even Noah building an altar in chapter 8 and verse 20. Uh, blood is involved in that. And so, perhaps God is trying to keep blood sacred. Um, But it just may also be humanitarian. Uh, Sorry, humanitarian is not the right word. Humane. It might also just be that God wants humans to treat animals humanely. That, for example, a family shouldn't cut off a cow's leg while it's still living, patch up the wound, and eat the leg and take it part by part. This is, what, this is what some ancient cultures did because obviously obviously a, a small family can't eat a cow in one go. And so before the days of freezers and refrigerators and so on and so forth, this is what some people would do. And so it may just be in this section that God is saying you need to kill the animals before you eat them. In any case... There, there's, there's limit, limitations around that um, that would involve doing it in a way that's ethical and in a way that honors Yahweh and so forth. So, this is a, again a new order. What we see is that God is placing Noah and his family, as it were, into a new world which bears some continuity with the old but also reckons with the facts of human corruption, that also reckons with the facts that sin has already entered into the world, and what is life going to look like from now on. Another thing that's added is capital punishment. 
He says in chapter 9 and verse 5 to Noah, For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So we see in this section, again, an institution of capital punishment. We need to recognize where we are in the biblical storyline. As I said, you don't see the Mosaic laws, uh, dietary laws in effect here. Every moving thing that lives is eligible as food in this section. Whereas later on, when the Mosaic dietary laws are added, not every moving thing is eligible for food. So what we need to understand is the things that God is instituting here are things that are for all mankind everywhere and not for the particularly mosaic economy. That, that this is not mosaic things that he's instituting. And so capital punishment then is not a mosaic institution, but it's a, it's a principle that ought to guide even all of our modern nations. That the idea here, and the idea here is not primarily deterring would-be murderers from murdering, but the idea here is justice. That there is actually retributive justice. That the one who kills a man deserves himself to die. That God requires his life from him. And so we see instructions here about the way things will be from now on here in this earth as Noah and his family come out of the ark. God is not, did not forget Noah, did not forget Noah's family and the animals and the birds that dwelt in the ark, and neither did God forget the world at large. Neither was God unconcerned about the world at large or future generations. But God set up provision here and structure for everybody who would be born in subsequent generations to Noah and to his sons. God is committing himself here in this section to continue to be engaged with mankind. God is not writing off the rest of the world as it were. He's not focusing in only on the faithful in this section of scripture. In other words, he's not saying, Noah, don't worry about anyone else. I'm only going to deal with you. He's, he's saying things that are explicitly relevant to all people everywhere, even in future generations. Take, for instance, even in verse 6 of chapter 9, where it says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is one of the passages of Scripture that teach us that man still bears God's image even after the fall. We don't bear it as we ought, but we still do bear it. And so God is concerned to be involved uh, with all of His creation in perpetuity. That God is not disregarding the rest of the world, as it were, and focusing only on the faithful. He forgets neither the faithful nor the rest of the wider world. But God remembers. God continues to be engaged. So if that is the case, then what does it mean for us? It means that we must not forget the wider world either. 
certainly in terms of the Great Commission, we must not forget the wider world. We're commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. We certainly should not forget to proclaim the message that all people everywhere are guilty of sin. That, as it says in this passage, chapter 8 and verse 21, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. We shouldn't fail to promulgate that message and to point to the, the seed of the woman who has crushed the serpent's head and continue to urge people to worship Yahweh acceptably by faith in His promises as Noah continued to do, presumably after the flood and as other faithful men and women did after Noah. We, we certainly shouldn't forget about the rest of the world in that sense. But what's in view in, in this passage is not so much salvific, it's just what do we do until Christ comes back? And what is, what is the nature of the world until Christ comes back? And what is the nature of our relationship to the world until Christ comes back? Certainly, we know from other scriptures that we should be busy about the Great Commission and not forget about the world in that sense. But that's not what's primarily in view in this passage. What's primarily in view here is that the original purpose of mankind and the original duties and responsibilities of mankind are still in effect. Remember we talked about way back in Genesis, the creation mandate, light, order, and life. God doesn't change anything here in this section. In fact, in, by repeating to Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, he's basically repeating, keep doing what I told Adam and Eve to do. And so until Christ comes back, we and all people in the world are to be busy about doing things that make for life, that make for the flourishing of life, that make for the uh, promulgation of life. We ought to be doing things that make for order. We ought to be doing things that make for light, whether literal light, like making light bulbs, or whether intellectual light by spreading, disseminating true ideas. We still ought to be doing these things. That... There's a remnant then, in some sense of goodness, that is still latent in this world. And in some sense, it's still latent in people. We believe in total depravity. That means that the, all of our aspects of our being are corrupted by sin. But it doesn't mean we're as bad as we possibly could be. Nor does it mean that the image of God has been utterly erased from our lives. We see here, even in this passage, that's not true. That, that God requires a reckoning for man's blood for God made man in His image. And so, we don't need to... God didn't just write off the rest of the world and disengage with the rest of the world and say, don't worry about the rest of the world, Noah. You just worship me and try to stay far away from them. It's assumed here that Noah's going to participate uh, in the ordinary activities of society. That Noah's going to be engaging with people, even within his own family as the narrative goes on, who don't trust and don't worship Yahweh. And he's going to have to have interactions. And so Noah is to worship Yahweh and to fulfill the creation mandate in a way that is worshipful and honoring to Yahweh. But this passage indicates to us that even wider mankind is going to also continue to be at work fulfilling the creation mandate and is also going to be responsible 
fulfilling, fulfilling the creation mandate, to continue to pursue light, order, and life, and that we ought to treat others with respect and not just write them off entirely because they're outside of Christ Jesus, therefore they're not doing anything worthwhile or anything good or anything purposeful. We're not to denigrate or treat others outside of the church with disrespect and so on and so forth. God is still concerned about the wider world. And so we also ought to be concerned about the wider world. We sometimes have such a negative view as Christians of those who are not Christians or of of wider society. You hear people you hear people talk like, well this world is a sinking ship and the sooner that I get off it the better. Well, that's not really exactly what God says to Noah here in this passage. Right? He he basically communicates to Noah and his sons, keep doing what Adam was supposed to do in the first place. Keep doing all that. Right? And this is running alongside this is running alongside the worship of Yahweh the redemption of Eve's seed uh, through that one seed who would crush the serpent's head, right? The redemption of mankind through the seed of Eve that would crush the serpent's head. This is, this is kind of running alongside that track. So there's sort of a salvific track in Scripture, things pertaining to salvation. But what we see here in this passage is that there's actually just provision for human life and for human flourishing even with respect to those who are not Christians, even with respect to those who are not Yahweh worshipers, that God still is dealing kindly with them, that God still is protecting the dignity and the worth and the value of their person, that God is making provision for their preservation and for their flourishing in spite of the fact that they're not worshipers of Him. And so that ought to affect the way that we think of the outside world. That we shouldn't think of things in such black and white terms like, like, well, we're good people and everyone else at the church is bad people or what really matters is what we do in the church and what we do outside the church doesn't matter or uh, nothing that we do in our workplaces is of any value because the only thing that matters is preaching the gospel or things like this. We shouldn't have this really, really negative view of the outside world. Now certainly don't mishear me. There is only one way of salvation. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which we must be saved. So don't, get me, don't mishear me as if Christians are worshiping God and everyone else is worshiping God in their own way. I'm not saying that at all. But all I'm saying is that God in this passage deals kindly with all of creation. All people everywhere who will ever be born, whether they're going to be worshipers of the true God or not. God makes provision for their preservation in this passage. God treats them with respect as image bearers in this passage and says that He's going to call people to account who dare to spill their blood. Even the blood of unbelievers will be accounted for in God's reckoning. And so if this is the way that God treats even those who are not true worshipers, what I am saying, what I am saying is that even as we worship Yahweh, 
And even as we call others to worship Yahweh, through Christ Jesus, the only one in whom we may be saved. Even as we call those outside the church to place their faith in Christ Jesus and come inside the church for the salvation of their souls. Even while we do these things, there will be those who reject this message. But even though they reject this message, we are not to reject them. You understand? God doesn't, as it were, utterly cast off the world in this incident. God doesn't look in Genesis 6 and say, mankind has become corrupt, I'm going to flood the world and walk away from it. God floods the world, but stays with it, as it were. God floods the world and continues to engage with the world. And so even as we proclaim God's judgment, even as we call people to repentance and faith, until Christ returns, we're going to live alongside those who don't worship Yahweh. And our attitude toward them should be an attitude of respect. We should recognize their basic human dignity, even if they're not true worshipers of Yahweh. And we should actually cooperate with them in the fulfillment of the creation mandate to bring light, order, and life into this world. So we work hard in our workplaces, respecting the human dignity of the people around us. And we do what we can to help light, order, and life flourish uh, while respecting and, and honoring the people around us. And we, we treat even animals in a humane way. right? We treat even inanimate creation, I think, implicitly, also in a humane way. That God is concerned about the life of creatures with no souls and the fact that God caused vegetation again to flourish after the flood and so on and so forth, I think shows us that God is concerned even about inanimate creation. And so we should still even treat creation inanimate creation with respect. So we honor even unbelieving people around us. We honor even animals who have no souls and we honor even inanimate creation like trees and grass and so on and so forth in the way that we live. We, so what we need to understand about Christianity and I think this passage kind of brings it out is that it's not, it's not an entirely otherworldly hope. It's not a pie-in-the-sky Christianity where it's kind of like we're twiddling our thumbs down here doing nothing while we just wait for everything to burn up and go to another place. That that's, not really, that's not really the narrative of the Scripture. And we see that even in this passage. That God leaves Noah to continue living alongside, even cooperating with and engaging with those who are unbelievers. And God makes provision for their preservation and for the the treatment of them with respect. And so if this is the way that God still views creation, that God still views animals, that God still views even unbelievers, this is also the way that we should view unbelievers. That we're not just twiddling our thumbs, waiting to die and go off into another place, but we're actually living productive lives here in society, here and now, well worshiping God through Christ Jesus. Well proclaiming a gospel message, good news for sinners that we can be reconciled to God and live with Him forever in the restored heavens and earth in eternity to come. 
while we do that, we also continue to be human. We also continue to do human things that all humans do and that all humans are created to do. We're not so entirely disengaged from and distinct from unbelievers that we're no longer human and we no longer treat them like human. We're, also, we're, no, we're not so uh, we're not to be scornful and disdainful of the wider world, but we're to engage respectfully with the wider world, even while we worship Yahweh and call others also to worship Yahweh through His Son, Christ Jesus. Because that's exactly what God does in this passage. He treats all of creation and every person who will ever be born with a gracious level of dignity, respect, worth, value, etc., etc. We see common grace at work in this passage. And so we need to recognize the existence of common grace that God is not dealing so graciously with those who are in Christ Jesus and then being not gracious at all towards anyone else. If that were the case, maybe that's how we would be supposed to relate as well. But that's not the way that God deals. God deals most graciously with us, but He deals graciously with everybody. And so we need to recognize these things and even in fact feel free to enjoy common grace. Just enjoy the fact that some people are really good at farming and growing things that will become ingredients and good food and enjoy it. I recognize that some people are really good at making good art and enjoy it and so on and so forth. We see that God's view of the world is not utterly and completely to cast it off and so neither should our view of the world be utterly and completely to cast it off. But as God gives common grace even to the unbelieving world and even to the inanimate world, so we should recognize the existence of common grace and live accordingly.